Hey, what's going on, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? You're listening to This Week in Sports. I'm your host, as always, The Pody. It is Friday, April 1st, 2022. Yes, it is April Fool's Day. I don't have any jokes. We're going to start the show off talking about um, one Jacob deGrom of the New York Mets. So before we do that, let's play our new cool little music to introduce the show. Jacob deGrom is said to have three residences, one in Florida, one in New York, and one in the MRI tube. Nobody? Uh, okay, so that was, um, that's, my, that's my joke for the day. My dad sent me that one, heard it on the radio, I guess. So yeah, story goes, let me get this right. Um, according to Jeff Passan, Jacob deGrom will miss opening day after imaging showed a stress reaction in his right scapula. While the timetable for deGrom's return is unclear, he's going to miss a sig- significant amount of time to start the 2022 season. He will be shut down for at least a month before he starts throwing again. After a month, the Mets will take a look at the area again and reevaluate where he is and what the right course of action is going to be going forward. This is not an April Fool's joke. This is real. I believe DeGrom threw yesterday, had some tightness, some stuff going on. MRI was unclear, didn't really reveal much, which is never a good sign. Um, so that's... That's pretty much where we stand on Jacob Degrom. That's the, the the latest news. There's some there's some intrigue here because Max Scherzer, uh, tightened had a tight hamstring, also either today or yesterday. But they're saying that's minor, and he will probably be ready to go for opening day to replace Degrom at the top of the rotation. So I want to grab that um audio clip. There's an audio clip today. The uh, Michael K show. Michael's been out with COVID now for the third straight day. He said to be doing good. So can't wait to see him back on the show, hopefully by Monday. But they had Buster Olney on. And here is Don LaGreca talking to Buster Olney about Jacob deGrom and dialing it back a little bit. If that's something he, he can do, because giving max effort on every single pitch is not ideal, and this is an area of concern, and this is why these pitchers are getting hurt more and more and f- more frequently. So take a listen. Hold on. Hold on. Why did we disconnect? Give me one second. We disconnected from the Bluetooth. So I don't know why that happened, but here we go. Let's try that again. 
asked a bunch of people that question this winter and some people who know DeGrom and they basically said it would be like asking a zebra to change his stripes. They talk about how you know DeGrom is so competitive and he's trained his body to try to throw as hard as he possibly can and so to ask him to dial back, they think that not only would it raise questions of physiology, would he be at more risk if all of a sudden you know he was trying to you know lay back a little bit. Would that put him actually at more risk of an injury? But they just don't think that that's in his makeup. You know, he's a Lamborghini and he's not going off road. They just say he's too competitive. Yeah. Don went on to say, you know, even a Lamborghini around the turn has to dial it down to about 40 miles an hour, which is very true. But, um, you know, that conversation went on about uh, Buster talking about how he spoke to Tom Seaver once years ago and he basically said that you have to dial it down he's good for you know later in his career he's good for about 95 96 maybe six times and it's just not necessary to throw to that eighth or ninth batter that's hitting you know a buck 50 or 200 there's no need to throw a hundred on three pitches and here's the other thing this is the problem with DeGrom as well and a lot of these other pitchers nowadays strikeouts have never been more frequent Uh, batters swinging and missing because of launch angle has never been more frequent. And when you strike batters out, you're throwing a lot of pitches through six innings or so. And plus, these these pitchers don't go even six innings sometimes anymore or surpass really 100 pitches anymore. So there's that too. And yes, your Walter Johnsons and this and things of that nature, they gave max effort as well back in the day, but they might have been topping out at 88 miles an hour, but that could have been relative to the rest of the league maybe that was only throwing 78. So it's this this intrigue, this interesting dynamic of of when to dial it back, when to give max effort. Like usually there's an old saying or old adage, basically your first time through the order, you don't want to show all your pitches. You know, you're just getting loosened up and warmed up and you want to just try to work your way through the first time around the order, then start to mix in and show your other stuff. And with DeGrom, I mean, it's just physiology. He cannot throw 95, 96 mile an hour sliders and expect his elbow or his UCL is not going to shatter or snap, right? Where he'll, he'll need Tommy John. It's just, it's not physically possible to sustain. And yeah, he's trained his body and he's the best pitcher in baseball, but he's getting older with each passing year, with each passing day, with each passing week. And already he's come to spring. And I said, I, I don't, remember exactly if I said it on this podcast, but I either thought it or I've said it to friends or what have you. And I probably did say it on this podcast that there was no doubt in my mind with the 99 day lockout and everybody coming back rushed three weeks out, basically a month until until games. They had, you know, games starting next week, basically. Uh, Apple TV will debut with games next Friday. So keep that in mind. Games are about a week away and they had to really push to get everybody ready. And I said, I know I said this, there were going to be injuries because guys are ramping up at a very quick pace. And these guys that, yeah, they can train all they want for these 99 days and this lockout and everything else and do their own working out on their own because they're freaks of nature, you know, peak performance. They're athletes, you know, they're going to work out every day because that's their job. That's what they have to do. They don't have a regular nine to five. And still, 
it's not the same as getting on the field in short bursts. You're playing out in the outfield or you're playing a position. You're not moving for possibly 10, 15 minutes. Nothing could be happening, especially if DeGrom's on the mound and he strikes out three in a row. You're standing there. You're not moving. Boom. Bottom half of the inning, you're up, you know, first, you're on deck, whatever. Now you hit a slow roller ground ball to, to shortstop or third base, and you have to bust it out of the box and give your all. You're telling me you're going to make it to first base and you're not going to pull up lame with a hamstring injury or, or, you know, a quad injury or a groin injury. It's going to happen. And especially with pitchers, it takes time. It takes a, a whole lot uh, of time and throwing um, – and that regiment to get into full season peak peak performance and to come back from an off season and and to throw and extend your throwing and progressing that until a point where you are comfortable and where you're not going to hurt yourself and he exerted himself too much too fast too too early on it's still spring training here this was supposed to be his final tune up before the season Garrett Cole had his final tune up today i believe which went very well so i'm excited for what opening day um has in store for the Yankees and for baseball as a whole quite frankly but with DeGrom it, it's just one of those things um, they're lucky that it's only four to six weeks. I'm guessing he will miss about a month and a half to two months, uh, you know, on the cautious side. The Mets have a rotation right now, when healthy, that can compete with anybody in baseball. Whether that translates to winning, who knows? Whether DeGrom and Scherzer stay healthy all year, who knows? Whether Lindor, the, the Alonzo, whether all of them can stay healthy, who knows? But if they are healthy, if everything's clicking, they have a chance to do something special. And this is a huge blow for a guy who, although he's the best pitcher in baseball, continues year in and year out to get hurt and not be able to pitch 20 to 30 you know, starts per season. So um, just something to keep an eye on. Uh, Jacob deGrom is going to now miss between four and six weeks, and who knows? It could possibly be longer. They, you heard Buster only uh, – well, no, you heard the tweet from uh, Passan that they're going to reevaluate in four weeks. All right, moving on. Let's jump in, talk Final Four from last weekend. Of course – we had Kansas beating Miami, so Kansas is into the Final Four. They will face Villanova tomorrow at 6.09 p.m., and then you have Duke. They knocked off Arkansas. They will face number 8 North Carolina. Shocker, it's Duke. It's North Carolina for the first time ever in the Final Four in Coach K's final season. North Carolina, the 8 seed, a little bit of an anomaly this year with the 8 seed there. But they are a powerhouse, obviously, blue blood school. They beat Duke. They beat Coach K in his final home game in Cameron indoors. So Duke looking for some revenge. That will take place it, that's the later game, 8.49 p.m. E both times are in Eastern Standard, and these will take place not, unfortunately, on CBS. They will be on TBS, so something to keep in mind. And, of course, um, St. Peter's, they had a very nice run, um, but what probably should have happened against Kentucky uh, actually caught up with them. It took 
three amazing wins, but it finally caught up with them in the Elite Eight against that buzzsaw that was North Carolina. Uh, God, North Carolina's size and, and physicality um, just just really, really stifled them. They couldn't hit shots. They kept passing up shots to try to drive into Baycott, and Manic was hitting shots left and right, and Love, and just they had no chance. But what a run it was for Shaheen Holloway and the Peacocks. Um, it's a Cinderella story. We will never forget it. The first ever 15 seed to make it to the Elite Eight. Shaheen Holloway has since been hired as the new men's basketball coach at Seton Hall, his alma mater, and his press conference was epic. He brought his entire 15-man uh, roster from St. Peter's with him to his press conference and opened it up by asking to give them a standing ovation because he wouldn't be there without them. So just very, very cool story. The whole thing um, with St. Peter's and Shaheen Holloway only making $300,000 and their budget basketball budget was terrible and he had to take a, I think he took like a $50,000 pay cut, uh, just unbelievable stuff. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to him. What a run it was, but our final four is officially set. It is a magical run that now pits coach K in his final season up against North Carolina and Hubert Davis, who was coaching in his first season. So just what a storyline there. First year head coach versus a 75-year-old juggernaut, most wins in the history of bas- uh, of college basketball, just reached his 100th NCAA tournament victory, which is, of course, the most ever as well. Um, just incredible, incredible, incredible. And I can't wait to bet the house on Duke because I predicted Duke to make it to the national championship. I did not pick them to win, but I picked Duke to make it there. And Coach K will undoubtedly win this game. He is not going out. There is zero chance Coach K is going out and retiring, losing his final home game at Cameron Indoor to North Carolina and his final game ever in the final four, no less, for a chance to go to the title game to North Carolina. He is not losing his final two games to North Carolina. Just it, it, There's no way it's going to happen. No way. Um, with that being said, I just want to play some clips from both head coaches um, after their respective victories because a lot of times you get that great raw emotion when you... Um, when you catch them right after the game. So here first was Coach K after their win over Arkansas, sending them to the Final Four as region champs. Coach, it seems like with every game, with every challenge, this team just gets better and better. What stood out to you about their performance well, tonight? They outplayed us at start of the second half. They got it to five. And after the timeout, we were a different team. Going zone helped us, but we scored two straight times, and that was that was big. You talked to us about wanting this so bad for your team. Yeah. To see them right now have the opportunity. I'm so happy. Yeah, we call it crossing the bridge. There's nothing like being a regional champ and going to Final Four and playing on that Saturday with three other champions. It's an amazing day. I know there's emotion, but for you to be able to continue this run in your final season. I'm on I'm on their bus. I'm on their bus. They're not on my am I yo, you should interview him. This is a go right here. No, no, shut up. I'm gonna interview. 
do both of you guys. You guys Coach talked to us and he said you would have a feeling you've never experienced if you win this one. Wendell, why don't you talk to me right now about how you are feeling about headed to the final four? I mean, I can't even put this into words right now. If you look, Majo, all our guys, they're so happy. I mean, it's been a great week for us. We came together. I mean, we got a job done. I mean, but for us, the job's not finished. We still got two more to go. Two more to go. Now, you are headed to the Final Four, and there's a chance you either play Cinderella St. Peter's or your rival, and you get another shot at North Carolina. Paolo, which one do you want? You're not going to give me this time. <laughs> but I'm just proud of my team. You know, we've been working since June for this. And it's really surreal that we're here right now on our way to New Orleans for the Final Four. It's a dream come true, man. I thought I'd get you, but great answer. Good luck. We will see you in New Orleans. <laughs> That's great stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, probably didn't need to hear the interviews with Bancaro and Wendell Moore, but um, they, at that point, you know, St. Peter's, North Carolina had not played yet. So, of course, Tracy Wolfson trying to get them to say they want to play uh, North Carolina, of course, which they'll get their wish anyway. Um, speaking of another Cinderella, there was a second double-digit seed in Miami making their first ever Elite Eight appearance under head coach Jim Laranega, who, mind you, became the first head coach ever to take two double-digit seeds to the Elite Eight, of course, back way back in 2006, he took George Mason to the Final Four as they beat UConn in, what, double overtime, I think it was? And that that year, they were an 11 seed. Just unbelievable um, run that they had back in 2006. That was one of the great ones ever. Um, it was, uh, for Miami, most of that first half, now, Here's the deal. I, I said I picked Duke in the national championship game. On the other side, I picked Kansas to win it all over Duke. So I was getting a little bit nervous in, in, in the, uh, the start of this game, the first half. Uh, Miami was hanging with them. They looked very comfortable, and they were leading at the half. I don't know what turned, what Bill Self said. Maybe the Kansas players took a quick shower, cooled off. Um, maybe they had a quick snack. I don't know what, but whatever they did, it worked for Miami. On the other side, my goodness, one of the worst second halves you will ever see in any round of the NCAA tournament. Miami outscored in the second half, 47 to 15. Oh, my God. Yes, it was not pretty, not pretty one bit. But you can't take anything away from Miami. It is an unbelievable feat, a team that was on the bubble that almost did not make this tournament, and they made it all the way to the Elite Eight. So they have nothing to hang their heads on. That was an absolutely awesome run and it gave new life to a really football school um so we'll see what the future holds for the hurricanes uh men's basketball team all right let's quickly talk about villanova saturday was a little bittersweet for them as well um Guard Justin Moore helped his team secure its first Final Four since 2016, but he tore 
his Achilles in the process. And unfortunately, unfortunately, um, I saw that live as they took down Houston towards the end of this game, maybe two minutes left, Moore had the ball and it looked like he slipped and his feet came out from under him. And then you realized that his Achilles snapped and he's just laying on the ground, grabbing at the back of his leg, um, the back of his heel area. And oh my goodness, you saw the slow-mo replay. Achilles snapped, didn't need an MRI to know watching it live that he tore his Achilles. So it's going to be hard to replace him. Averaged, averaged 14.8 points and 4.8 rebounds per game. It's You're not replacing him. You're just going to, everybody, it's going to have to be a culmination of guys um, that get minutes here that that work together. You know, Gillespie's going to have to do more. All these other guys are going to have to chip in and, and you know, step up and, and just do a little bit more, you know. Um, Gillespie, who knows, you know, his knee was banged up a couple games ago. Um, you got, of course, Jermaine Samuels. He's going to have to have a big game. Um Eric Dixon as well is going to have to step up. Uh, Brandon Slater. All these guys are going to have to step up and give them a little bit extra if they have are going to have any chance to beat a stout Kansas team. Bill Self, the, these are blue bloods. This is a veteran. These are four in a wacky, crazy tournament that this was. These are four elite blue bloods. All these teams have won before. All of these coaches have won before, of course, except for Hubert Davis. Uh, but he knows what it is to win. He's been an assistant, so there's no problem there. So it should be a fun Final Four. I'm hoping Kansas can pull it out, and I'm hoping to see Duke-Kansas matchup in the finals. I think that would be amazing. Let's quickly and briefly talk about the women's Final Four because that is set as well. Number two, UConn took down number one, NC State. Um, in double overtime, this was a classic, 91 to 87. So give you a little background, NC State, they played well enough all year, of course, to earn a number one seed. They even played well enough to just beat Notre Dame by three in the Sweet 16, but reality then kicked in. Unfortunate for them as a number one seed, they got to play. They had the pleasure of playing UConn in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, my God. Might as well have been a home game for UConn. Uh, of course, Paige Beckers, who missed 19 games with a knee injury this year, scored 27 in the double OT win. I want to say she was held to single digits in the first half and went off in the second half slash overtime. Uh, for UConn, it is their 14th straight Final Four, and they are the only non-number one seed to make it to the Final Four this year. Unfortunately, their win was also bittersweet. They will be without forward Dorka Juhas, who suffered a season-ending wrist fracture against against NC State. So in this game, she went for a putback. She grabbed an offensive re rebound, tried to go up with a putback, fell, put her hands out to brace herself, and you saw her wrist snap on live television. So another gruesome little injury there. Um, Juhas from Pex Hungary is a graduate transfer from Ohio State. So another player, um, I think she came off the bench, going to be a little bit tough to replace. But again, it's UConn. Um, if anybody can can overcome the loss of, of one of their players, it's Gino Oriyama. 
So the final four matchups will take place. They're actually on right now. Um, you have number one, South Carolina versus number one, Louisville. Let me get you an updated score as we speak. It's 34 to 28. South Carolina leads number one, Louisville at the half. Uh, UConn Stanford, that's coming up at 930. I actually don't want to brag, but I picked three out of these four teams in my final four bracket. I did one women's bracket on ESPN tournament challenge. Unfortunately, I had Iowa in the finals against Stanford and I had Stanford repeating as champs. Um, I thought Iowa would get it done because they apparently had the Steph Curry of women's basketball, the best player in Caitlin Clark, but they couldn't even get past the 10 seed Creighton in the second round. So that was a bit disappointing, but otherwise I got the other three. Um, Right, so let's see if I can get it right again with Stanford repeating. It's going to be a great game between Stanford and UConn. So towards the end of the show, I will give you an update on that South Carolina and Louisville score. All right, let's get back to baseball, talk some quick things. This is a bizarre um, baffling story that I'm hearing about for the first time. I was texting my dad about this earlier today. He's been in baseball, played baseball for nearly... I'd say 50 plus years, 55 years or so, right? He's been playing since he was a kid, whatever the case may be, coaching it for over 40 years and never heard this in our life, in his life. I never heard this, et cetera. So here we go. In the minors, they uh, the minor leagues, starting with the second half of the minor league season, they are going to be moving second base inwards a little bit more than a foot. It will move from 88 feet, 1.5 inches away from first base to 87 feet. Now, if you're a little bit confused by that, bear with me. This new configuration was actually on display last year as part of a trial run out west in the AAA Pacific Coast League. However, according to the data, there wasn't much of a strategy change because they didn't. Re- it wasn't really like a known thing, so there was no real difference in stolen bases. That won't be the case when they bring this mainstream to the rest of the minor league ballparks. So now that MLB has sent a memo to all teams about the change, and again, this is coming to the minor league stadiums and minor leagues, not major leagues just yet, but now that this memo is being sent out and it's more widely known, there's expected to be an uptick in, in, in you know the data and and of course we'll probably see more stolen base attempts more pickoff attempts more 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 uh caught stealing etc um but here's the deal oh, i thought i talked about this in here um there's a whole thing about if you're wondering why they're moving the bases from 88 feet to 87 you're like that doesn't sound right aren't the bases 90 feet apart? Well, I'll tell you a little story. The answer is no. The distance from first base to second base and from second base to third base for 135 years has never been 90 feet. So if you look at an invisible diamond, first base and third base are nicely nestled into the corners of the diamond. Well, second base is not. It's about smack dab in the middle of the diamond. It's not flush, you know, nestled in there 
so it's not 90 feet away. It was a, a construction error, a, a dimensions error back 135 years ago, whatever you want to call it. But there was a whole a whole article I read from J, by Jason Stark in The Athletic, and they showed a picture of the dimensions. It, it's It's funky, it's wacky, but now they're moving it up, and this is just one of those useless things that they're doing that they think is going to improve the game of baseball and bring viewership back to the game. And I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen. It's going to make things worse. There's going to be, like I said, sure, maybe more stolen base attempts. This is going to slow the game down. There's going to be more pickoff attempts, thus slowing the game down and more runners caught stealing. Here's the problem. More stolen base attempts could lead to more throws down to second, obviously, throwaways, extending plays. It's just extra throws, extra pitches. And then here's the deal. If there's a bang-bang play, we now need video replay. So are we going to constantly have video review and coaches' challenges? It's just it's going to slow up the game. And who knows? There could be a possibility that this is such an this is so advantageous to the base runners that they're stealing bases left and right, and nobody is getting caught. But I want to know what the likes of Ricky Henderson feel about this. The fact that they're moving the bases in, and now it taints any sort of stolen base record. Of of course, although of course nobody in the history of baseball ever again will touch or even come close to any Ricky Henderson type stolen base record in their lifetime. Um, but still, it, it's ridiculous. They're playing. They're switching up the rules. And 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 it, it's not good for baseball. And I just don't understand what what they think this is going to do. The kids are not going to care for this. It's not going to help the game of baseball, plain and simple. Oh, my God. Whoops, wrong one. So, anyway, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit of football. They, they you know, owners meetings going on, et cetera. So there's some, there, there have been some modifications now to the Rooney rule. Here we go. As if the Rooney rule wasn't dumb enough, they're making it worse. Interviewing a woman will now count toward Rooney rule fulfillment. So, oh, okay. Instead of me interviewing a black coach, I'm just going to bring in a woman, interview her. I covered my ass on the Rooney rule, and I just won't hire her. Or I'll hire her for the preseason and then see ya. An interview must take place in person to qualify. Okay. Well, COVID basically gone, so this should not be a problem. Every team will hire a minority offensive assistant coach for the 2022 season. Literally, every team. It's not saying every team is going to. No, 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 no. Every team will, meaning this was handed down from the league. You must hire a minority offensive assistant coach for the 2022 season. So, like I said, like I've probably said in the past, I have no issue with minority head coaches in this league. They, I mean, Tony Dungy has won a Super Bowl. Lovey Smith has gotten to a Super Bowl. The Jets have had three of them in Herm Edwards, Todd Bowles, 
and now um, Robert Sala as minority head coaches. And let's face it, Herm Edwards is one of my favorite coaches of all time. I love me some Herm Edwards now, of course, at Arizona State. Um, Todd Bowles, I could not stomach as head coach of the Jets. I just could not. uh, Todd Bowles was so bad. A nice enough guy, but he's not head coaching material. And I'll get to more on Todd Bowles later. But I so I have nothing, no issue with minority coaches. But the fact that you're forcing teams to interview them and possibly now and now forcing them to hire them. How is this not reverse discrimination against non-minority people such as whites? If you now have two coaching candidates that are one is white, one is a minority, one is black, say, or whatever, right? You bring them both in for an interview to fill your final spot. They both have great resumes. Maybe the white guy interviews a little bit better and you want to hire him. Well, guess what? Now you can't because you have no choice but to hire the minority because you are being forced to do so. That is complete BS. Like I said, this has never been about race. It should never be about race, the color of somebody's skin, Etc. There are more minority, more blacks that play football than more blacks that play basketball. Okay, there are plenty of black coaches in the NBA. There's a handful in in the NFL. Right, there probably should be more. Sure, but the track record isn't great. The ones that have been head coaches, a lot of them, for the most part, have been bad, and they get recycled and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Todd Bowles, like I said, Jets coach. Now he's getting a second chance to be a head coach. Okay, that's fine. But the track record isn't great. You should be hiring the best possible candidate for the job. Who you think is the best candidate. Who you like the best. And again, it's about relationships. So if, say, I don't know, the New York Jets, for example, they hired Adam Gase because of the relationship he had with Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning called up the ownership and said, Woody Johnson, listen, or at the time it was his friggin' brother, um, and said, listen, this guy was my coach. He's great. You should hire him. So the Jets hired him. That's that's It's about relationships. That should be okay. But now you're saying, no, you, you can't do that. You have to hire a minority. You're forcing, this is very, this is a very scary you know, bridge we're crossing now, forcing teams to hire a minority. Granted, it's one position out of, you know, what is it, 20 something, maybe 15, 20 coaches that you're going to have on staff. Um, So in the grand scheme of things, no, it's not crazy, but man, oh man. And why does it have to be an offensive assistant? Like, I'm not sure the ruling on that, but anyway, that's the new rules there. So let's move on. All right, a couple of injuries that I should uh, let you guys know about in the NBA as we get uh, as we gear up towards playoffs. Evan Mobley, your front runner for Rookie of the Year, and Celtics center Robert Williams, who is a Defensive Player of the Year candidate, could both miss extended time 
Robert Williams partially tore his meniscus and could be out four to six weeks while Mobley sprained his ankle on Monday. He's going to miss at least the next few games. So he should be back well before um, Robert Williams. But it's a tough blow for the Celtics who are fighting for that first seed in the East. All right, let's talk about the Motor City, Detroit. The NFL announced that the Motor City will host the 2024 NFL Draft, beating out Green Bay and Washington. This after news broke that the Lions were tabbed for this upcoming season of Hard Knocks. That is awesome news. I can't wait, as Bart Scott would say. Dan Campbell is a lightning ball of energy, and I just... It's going to be awesome to watch him shine in front of the camera. I also can't wait to see his Starbucks order that he talks so highly about. Okay, back to the hardwood, a little college hoops real quick. Let's talk. I got to bring this up. Uh, Arkansas, they just lost in the Elite Eight. They made it back, back to the Elite Eight for the second straight year, falling to Duke. However, that momentum has head coach Eric Musselman building the greatest recruiting class in Arkansas history, hands down. On Tuesday, five-star point guard Anthony Black committed to the Razorbacks. Great name he's got there. Black is the number 22 overall player and number three point guard in the 2022 class, according to 247sports.com, those composite ratings that they do. He was the third highest ranked up Uh, excuse me, he was the third highest ranked uncommitted prospect prior to Monday's announcement. He is also the sixth player in an Arkansas class that ranked number two nationally before his commitment. And all six Arkansas commitments are top 100 recruits. Oh my God. Easily, Arkansas should be an AP preseason top five team when that poll comes out. All right, the NFL made another rule change, this time to overtime. Sudden death overtime in the playoffs is officially no more. The NFL did not like what they saw with Josh Allen not getting a chance, and they made the rule the rules change. Uh, both teams will now get at least one overtime possession, so a situation like I said, last year does not happen. Of course, it doesn't happen if Buffalo stops the Chiefs from scoring with 13 seconds left, but I guess they saw enough to to, to change this rule. Um, I think I have some audio from this. Let's see. Okay, yes, here we go. This is Mike Pereira on the Colin uh, Coward uh, show. NFL decided to tweak their overtime rules in the playoffs. I'm good with it. I'm I'm good with the current overtime, but I do think in the playoffs there's data that shows that the better quarterbacks get the ball first in the playoffs, they win. What did you make of the NFL moving off their traditional overtime? Well, I, I think it was necessary. I mean, I think you have to think about not just players and coaches, but I think you need to think about the fans and Everybody was left dissatisfied with what happened at the end of the the uh, Kansas City Buffalo game, and I think it's a simple tweak. So you know, this was easier than the first tweak, where they actually you know made it to where it was a two possession game if you didn't uh, score a touchdown on the first series. 
But I, I just think this is fair. And I think sometimes you have to change rules that are simple and that are fan friendly. And I applaud the fact that they're making this change. All right. So here's what I'll say. This is not a cure-all. It, it, it is probably a better uh, move than keeping the current format. And this is really the big reason probably why they changed it. Teams that win the coin toss in overtime are 10 and 2 since they put the rule, the new rule in, excuse me, in place in 2012, where, of course, it used to be first team that scores field goal, touchdown, whatever, game over. But in 2012, they made the rules change where if the first team to possess the ball in overtime kicks a field goal, the opposing team has a chance to either tie the game or go for the win. And if they tie the game, then it becomes sudden death. Obviously, if neither team scores in their opening possession of overtime, then it's sudden death as well. But that was put in place in 2012, and teams that win the coin toss are 10 and 2. So that's why they made this rule change. Some people will like it. Some people won't. It's going to extend games significantly now, possibly. But I think it's at least a good move for the playoffs. All right, got to talk about the U.S. men's national team. I was all over World Cup, uh, the draw today. I I was excited for it. I've been paying attention to the U.S. men's national team because it's been four years since we were in the World Cup. Missed out in 2018, but baby, we're back. The U.S. men's national team, led by Christian Pulisic, is back, and we're ready to do big things, okay? So congratulations to the U.S. men's national team as they punch their long-awaited ticket to the World Cup, which will take place uh, later this year in November. So we've got a ways to go still, but uh, we had the draw today. So here's what here's what I'll say about this. Um They went into Wednesday's final match. They needed to win, draw, or lose by no more than six goals to Costa Rica. Uh, I was disappointed to see them lose this game, but they did lose two to nothing. So because they did not lose by six goals or more, they were safe and they are officially into the World Cup alongside their rival Mexico and group winner Canada. So this, of course, three teams from the CONCACAF that get the automatic bids to the World Cup. Quick note on Canada. This is just their second World Cup of all time and their first World Cup since 1986. First World Cup appearance since 1986. Oh, my God. So congratulations to them. Kudos to them. I know they're a hockey country. Um, so, wow, just very, very impressive. Um, so they had the draw today. Carly Lloyd representing Rutgers, representing New Jersey. She was on hand for that as one of, you know, the presenters, if you will. Um, so here's what happened. Qatar is the host country. They filled out Group A. They started this off with Group A, Qatar in Group uh, position A1. So here we go. Group A, you have Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, the Netherlands. So the the criteria is there can't be more than two European countries per per group, and there cannot be two, like U.S., Canada can't be two from the CONCACAF and can't be two from Africa. But there can be two from Europe because they have the most countries. So Group A, Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. The Netherlands should have no problem coming out of there. I would guess Ecuador comes out of there with them. Group B, 
You have England at the top. Iran in the second position. Team U.S. in the third position. And then, interestingly enough, the fourth spot will go to the Euro playoff, which is between Wales, Scotland, and Ukraine. So one of those three teams, they'll play play it out in June, I believe, and one of those three teams will get in. There are because there's three remaining spots that need play-ins. Um, there's there's another one that includes a couple teams um, as well. There there's two other play-ins that that I forget uh, those those remaining teams that are in there. But that's Group B. Group C is Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. In Group D, you've got France. That other playoff or play-in, you've got Denmark and Tunisia. In Group E, you've got Spain. That second playoff, Germany and Japan. In Group F, you've got Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. Of course, Croatia was the 2018 runners-up to France, and Belgium came in third place in, in that 2018 uh, run, uh, a World Cup there. So Canada in a tough spot there. But I, I don't think it's it's a terrible draw for them. Be interesting to see if they can make it to the round of 16. Uh, group G, you've got Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon. I expect Brazil and Switzerland to come out of there. And in Group H, you have Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and Korea Republic, the Republic of Korea. Uruguay, um, they won the first ever World Cup way back in the day. Some trivia there for you. So yeah, those are the group stages. I think U.S. is in a very good spot. U.S. and England should come out of that group. That would be nice to see. Uh, so yeah, I think this is interesting. I think the toughest draw, the toughest group, I think these are very fair groups to be honest, but if I had to guess, the toughest group would probably be Group E, with Spain, Germany, Japan, and then we're awaiting to see who that final play-in is going to be. Um, but that's a tough, tough group. So, yeah, I was all locked in. I was watching this on my lunch break um, at work with another guy that I work with. So it was fun, and I, you know, um, I'm into it. But now we got to wait till November. Uh, but we do ha- we do get till June to see who is going to join uh, the U.S., Iran, and England in Group B. So we'll see who rounds out those final three spots. Okay, let's talk. The Masters. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors surrounding Tiger Woods because the Masters begins next week and the golf world is abuzz with speculation that he may play in the event. He's still listed in the field but has yet to publicly confirm whether he is playing or not. He flew in to Augusta earlier this week. He played in a practice round on Tuesday. That is does not indicate a man that is going to miss this tournament. That sounds to me like a guy that is preparing to play. Now, whether he played and didn't feel like his leg held up or whatever have you, I think that he is probably leaning towards playing. I'm going to say it's probably 60-40, 70-30, more so that he plays than not. Um, He's a competitor. This is one of the greatest... Um, you know, events in in, in the sport. Um, it's it's the green jacket, of course, and he's won it a number of times. And I think this would set the golf world, the sports world, on fire 
if Tiger Woods competed in the Masters. And the odds for him right now are like staggering, like 66 to 1. Uh, I mean, we might have to throw down some money on him if he does get announced as in this field. Just would be incredible. Um, back to the World Cup real quick. So I said Senegal was in this thing. They are in, um, I believe, Senegal is, yeah, Senegal is in Group A. This is a wild story. So Senegal got into the World Cup by eliminating Egypt on Tuesday with a one nothing win on penalties. But there's an asterisk there because they got a little help from the home crowd. What am I talking about? Well, Mo Salah, who was one of the best players in the world for uh, plays for Egypt, he lined up for a penalty kick and the entire crowd of Senegalese fans were shining green lasers in his face. I don't understand how that was even allowed, but these other countries, there's no rules. And in soccer, there's definitely no rules. So uh, they kill you in these stadiums if, if you look at them funny. So yeah, they pointed green lasers in his face. Could possibly have caused, you know, damage to his eyes for all we know. And he missed the penalty kick and that's how they freaking won. And that's how they got into the World Cup. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. That is so corrupt and that is cheating in my opinion, but what am I to say? Okay, we've got to talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There were some bombshell announcements made during um, during uh, on Wednesday, and then there was a press conference yesterday. So here we go. Bruce Arians abruptly retired from coaching handing over the reins to Todd Bowles, who he's mentored, who he's coached since their days at Temple for damn near 40 years. Um, so Arians will move to the front office where he will continue with the Bucks in an advisory role. So here's a couple clips I will play um, from Bruce Arians himself. Uh, this one is, he was asked a question on whether or not Tom Brady had anything to do with him retiring. Get your ass on the golf course, man. I'm getting broke. Uh, no, we have a great relationship. I mean, uh, all the players who are there, are a few in here. Every one of them's gotten cussed out, all right, including him. So that's just part of me, you know. So uh, that, that's nothing new. But we have a great relationship. I mean, as soon as he retired, I think we text every week. Hey, where are you at? What are you doing? When are you going to play golf? Uh, when are you getting back down this way? And uh, so <laughs> people got it right. I mean, and. Uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. So there you have it. Arian saying him and Brady have a great relationship. Nothing there led to him deciding to retire. According to sources, Jeff Darlington maybe was one of them. I don't know. Uh, I forget. But apparently when Brady unretired, he knew that Arians was planning on um, retiring. So apparently he knew about this all beforehand. So... I guess it, take that for what you will. Here's the second comment um, asked about, you know, Hall of Fame. Like, why would you retire when Brady's coming back and you have a chance to win another Super Bowl and get into the Hall of Fame? And here was Arian's honest answer. number of people have already asked, why are you stepping away from a chance to go to Hall of Fame and win another Super Bowl? Because I don't give a Hall of Fame. Secession 
is way more important to me. This has been my dream for a long time. Guys that know me, they knew I wanted one of my guys to take over. And that's more important to me than anything and have a place where I could go and be welcome back. And obviously I have a job now and uh, I kind of love the, t- the title's pretty good. <laughs> we'll figure out what the hell it means soon, but, <laughs> but it's pretty damn good. And uh, I get to stay and have the relationships that I love. And uh, I couldn't turn it over to a better person. Been together, boy, I hate to, I hate to say how many years age both of us, but uh, Todd's going to do a great job. And uh, whatever everybody needs, Jason, Joel, Darcy, Todd, whatever my title means, I'm there. And uh, again, I can't say thank you enough to the coaches and the players, man, for for just being outstanding and buying in and uh, and believing the bullshit throughout there. And uh, it's been a great ride. Thank you. Yeah, so there you have it. There's the honesty from Bruce Arians. He just sounds like a cool, laid-back, down-to-earth guy that you want to play for, that you want to work for. And um, he speaks very highly of Todd Bowles, and he wanted him to take over. And he was probably planning this since the season ended. Maybe it was exasperated when um, Tom Brady retired or or decided to come back. I don't know. But... uh, Now we get to see what Todd Bowles is all about because Todd Bowles, let's face it, when he coached the Jets, didn't have a great roster. Um, They went 10-6. and They blew their chance to go to the playoffs in that final week in Buffalo that I was there. What was that, 2015 or whatever? Um, They had a a really good offense, um, but he made some bad decisions. A lot of times he would would go for fourth downs when they should have punted and he would make rash decisions and he's a more of a defensive minded head coach. So the offense, you know, struggled and whatnot. But um, now that he's got a legit team with Tom Brady, whether Tom Brady tries to force his way to Miami, that's another story. Who knows? But yeah, we'll see what we'll, we'll see what happens. And of course, Arian's joking. He doesn't know what this advisory role is, is going to even be, but Hey, he's happy to be there and happy to help any way he can. All right, let's talk about Eric Church for a quick second. If you know, if you're a country fan, you know who Eric Church is. Well, Eric Church decided that North Carolina basketball is more important than his fans. He decided to cancel his concert in San Antonio on Saturday night so he could spend time with his family at the UNC Duke Final Four game. That's how he's, you know, trying to spin it. I got to spend time with my family um, and not many people are are happy with him. In fact, most people are disgusted and ticked off with him. People that paid for hotels that are coming to town for this concert, people that um, flew in family members or parents, you know, to, to babysit their kids or people that are flying, paying airline ticket, pr- you know, prices to to get to San Antonio for this concert. And he canceled it for, I think, 18,000 people. This was no small concert. Unbelievable. And here's the here's the thing I will say about this. He didn't even go to UNC, but that's how much of a UNC fan he is. And I'm not going to lie. This is how I feel strongly about this, that if I was in his position, I probably would have done the same thing in all honesty, because here here's hear me out. I, you know, work a Monday through Friday, nine to five. I have that luxury. I'm off on the weekends. So I get to watch every single Jets game. It's religion for me. 
and it goes for my teams, all my teams really, but Jets mostly because there's only 16, 17 games now. You know, so it's every Sunday, it's gospel. I cannot miss my team's game. I will not miss a Jets game. No matter how bad they are, no matter what the year, I am not missing the New York Jets play football. So if I, and it goes, like I said, I, if Rutgers was in the final four, I'd be hard pressed. Now, here's the thing. So Rutgers started this tournament. Uh, the tournament started during softball season. And our softball season is in full swing right now. We've got games tomorrow morning. I've got to go. Um, we've got a long bus ride to play a doubleheader tomorrow. But if Rutgers made it to the final four and I had an opportunity to go and watch this game in person tomorrow night, we're playing softball games tomorrow. That would be very, very difficult for me to to skip those games to go to that final four but at the same time, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And these are two games. Yes, they mean a lot, but they're not playoff games just yet. They're not, you know, elimination games. It's, it, it, puts you in a, it's, it puts me in a very tough spot. And again, it, it's different because I guess for like Eric Church, a concert to him, that's, that's a day, that's work. Like that's a day of work for him, you know? So I guess you know he he's a, he he justifies it that way but yeah it, it's a tough spot to be in and and i have to say if, if i was in his shoes i i i'm probably doing what he does people are not putting themselves in his shoes and yes it's a bad uh a move you know financially from a financial standpoint cuz now these people that are saying i'll never support him i'll never go to another eric church concert etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's fine but He's a platinum-selling artist. He's one of the biggest country superstars. I think he'll be just fine. And back off because, like, there's plenty of people that call out of work to, to, to pay thousands to go to the Super Bowl. Like, this is what he did. He called out of work sick so he could go watch the game in person. So whether you like it or not, that's the decision he made, and get over it. All right, let's move on. Let's quickly talk the Savannah Bananas, one of the most, no, the most entertaining minor league baseball team in America. They did something out of left field on Tuesday night. Here, cue in 75-year-old, not even kidding you, Red Sox Hall of Fame pitcher Bill Lee, who promptly walked out of the stands, beer in hand, took the mound in a Savannah Bananas uniform and promptly struck out a 20-something-year-old minor league baseball player. Coming down from the stands, beer in hand, is Bill the Spaceman Lee. And boy, does he look good in yellow. Showing off the flexibility at 75 years old. Yeah! Heck of a kick! Bill, a 14-year Major League Baseball veteran, 10 with the Boston Red Sox, 4 with the Montreal Expos, 1973 Major League Baseball All-Star, 1975 started games two and seven of the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. As Bill fires a strike in there, 
Now Breland will switch back over to his natural right-handed side of the dish. Count one and two. There's the EFIS, and just swing it up. Oh, foul tip, foul tip. So another one, two. Bill actually almost got a strike and I couldn't believe it. And just swing and a miss! Bill Lee has struck out Breland Almodova with the devastating Leafus. Once again, Bill Lee throws the out. Bill Lee continues to impress at the ripe age of 75 years old. I mean, if you saw this video, it's just hysterical. This guy came out of the stands with his beer, and then he's, like, stretching towards on the mound, and I'm like, damn, 75 years old. This guy looks pretty nimble. He looks like he could still move it, and he was in the stretch. There was runner on second, and he, you know, he was throwing, like, crazy EFIS pitches, but the first one he legitimately threw for a strike. That was when the batter was up lefty. Then he went back to his natural position and he threw him two EFIS pitches and struck him out. 75 years old. What if this kid hit a, sh a line drive right back at him? He wouldn't, would he, he wouldn't have been able to get out of the way. He's 75 years old. He could have killed him. But this is what the Savannah ba Bananas do. They're just a, a crazy, fun, energetic uh, minor league uh, entertainment uh they're an entertainment industry. Like, that's what they are. They're in the entertainment industry. They're all about family and fun and, and making kids smile, and that's what it's all about. All right, let's talk about the New York Yankees and Brian Cashman. I cannot believe that Brian Cashman uh, said these things, but on Wednesday in an interview with The Athletic, he said the Yankees are in a World Series drought not because of anything they've done wrong, but because of illegal and horrific actions by the Astros. Here is the full quote. The only thing that stopped us was something that was so illegal and horrific. So I get offended when I start hearing we haven't been to the World Series since 09 because I'm like, well, I think we actually did it the right way. Pulled it down, brought it back up, drafted well, traded well, developed well, signed well, the only thing that derailed us was a cheating circumstance that threw us off. Here's what I will say to this, and then I will play Christopher Mad Dog Russo's take on this, which is very explosive. Drafted well, traded well, developed well. Who did you draft that well besides Aaron Judge? Name me one other guy. Oh, oh, okay. You traded and and then you gave a seven-year contract to often injured Aaron Hicks. How about the disgraceful contract that you gave to Jacoby Ellsbury? Okay. Remember that crazy seven, eight-year contract worth a hundred something million dollars, which was ridiculous at the time. And then he played in a handful of games and then never saw the light of day again because of injuries that ended his career. How about you traded guy? You you traded and you got Clint Frazier in return. You you got Glaber Torres for a Raldis Chapman. And and granted, Glaber has been has been good and all, but he had a terrible year. He went from hitting 30 home runs to hitting Near, less than half that, just absolutely awful last year. Couldn't play the shortstop position so much so that we had to move uh, that, that we had to move Gio Urshela to shortstop. And, and there's talks that they were going to trade Glaber this offseason. And and oh my goodness! Then you trade Gio Urshela and you trade 
Gary Sanchez this offseason. Talk about another player. Oh, yeah, you developed Gary Sanchez real well. He he was on fire in his first 30 games in the major leagues, and then it was all downhill from there. He's a terrible catcher, can't play the position. He's supposed to be a baby, you know, baby bomber and, and this and that, and then you get to the playoffs the last couple of years, and you're having to put Kyle Higashioka behind the plate. So it's ridiculous, this narrative that he drafted well and traded well and developed players well. It's a joke. They can't hit come playoffs. They don't develop anything well. It's a joke. But here's what Mad Dog Russo had to say. Don't take my my word for it. Take what he has to say. So the Yankees, who continually moan and groan about how they were ripped off, I'm sick of listening to it. Enough already. This is the same Yankee team that I hear nothing from them when it comes to 2009, when the Yankees, thanks to the juicer A-Rod, like a Christmas tree for crying out loud, hit 365, six homers and 18 RBIs in the postseason, Basically, single-handedly beat the Twins. They turned around after that and beat the Angels, and then knocked off the um, uh, and then knocked off the uh, the Phillies in the World Series. And A Rod was Superman, juiced up in in between innings, getting shots in his rear end for crying out loud. And here it is. I don't hear the Yankees saying, "You know, we're apologizing for that." Uh, not to mention the fact with Pettit and Clemens and and uh, and, and Mike Stanton, uh, you know, the lefty guy in the bullpen, and Chad Curtis and uh, Giambi. The Yankees were a pharmacy in the late nineties. I know it. I was there in spring training year in and year out. Well, the creatine, uh, you know, with little paper cups in the clubhouse. Ah, oh, come on, stop, please. Uh, stop moaning and groaning. A couple years ago, and what happened in two thousand and nineteen when the Yankees lost to the Astros again? They, they, they trash cans there? And what happened in 2015 when the Astros knocked the Yankees out in the wildcard game? The Yankees can't beat Houston. Case closed. And if the Yankees... Yeah, I'll tell you what happened in 2019. Araldis Chapman happened, could not throw a strike, and whether they were cheating again or not, the Yankees shouldn't... Both series, really, they sh- they still should have won despite the cheating. The Yankees blew a 3-2 series lead in 2017, so no excuses. Uh, I talked about 2017 and the developing players and whatnot, but man, oh man, he is not wrong when he talks about the 2009 Yankees. Those are all facts. All right, we had some playoff action on the hardwood last night, um, some potential playoff action between the Nets and and the uh, Bucks. I didn't watch most of this game. I saw the Nets were winning for most of the game, and I turned it on. It was about 9.25 or so. I texted my dad. I was about to go to bed, um, and then I saw the game. There was like six minutes left. I'm like, all right, it's a close game. Let me turn it on. The Nets go on a nice little run. They take like an eight, nine-point lead. They had a seven-point lead with less than two minutes left to play. And they, of course, choked it away, which I was disgusted by. So Giannis missed a three with just under a minute to go or something like that, right? And then I believe they fouled Drummond. And what did Drummond do? He missed both free throws. So then the Bucks got the ball back down three. And, of course, Giannis went down and tied the Abdul-Jabbar. You might as well do it in spectacular fashion. Step back three from Giannis. And this, the same shot he got on the previous possession. But he was more in rhythm with the big fella Andre Drummond trying to guard him on the perimeter. Takes a look at the opposite clock. How much time do I have left? A little right to left crossover step back. Yeah, and that shot 
surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Bucks history for the most points in franchise history. So Giannis reigned supreme. That sent the game to overtime. Just the, the Nets had, had like 13 seconds or even more. When he made the shot, there was like 18 seconds left. And they got the ball to Durant. He's completely... He's completely double teamed, practically get, getting, you know, robbed. And and he, he throws up a, a terrible shot that never had a chance to go in. And so the game went to overtime. They should have won it there in regulation. I was not happy that he took that final shot. It, it stood no chance. So we go to overtime. Um... Sorry. So, yeah, the Nets go to overtime, and in overtime, it's back and forth a little bit. Nets are Nets are winning, then they're down, Bucks are up, whatever. So the Nets are a little frantic on a possession. They almost get a steal to the Bucks, and then they find Durant in the corner. This is, again, like under a minute. They find Durant in the corner. He shoots the three, this by his own bench. And Wes Matthews comes running over, trailing late, and runs right at Durant's legs. Never went for the ball, never tried to block it. Ran right at his freaking legs, as far as I'm concerned. Hit Durant's legs. They called the foul. Durant falls to the ground at the feet of his bench, you know, his teammates. And he immediately grabs at his ankle. And I'm saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's a week left until the playoffs. We're in the play-in. Oh, my God. He cannot be hurt. And eventually he got up and whatnot. They did not assess a flagrant. This after earlier in regulation, uh, the Nets got a steal, kicked it up to Bruce Brown, and he had a breakaway from midcourt. He did slow himself down, allowing Chris Middleton on a hustle play to reach him. Chris Middleton completely fouls him. Bruce Brown falls awkwardly and lands on his arm, his left arm. And they review it and they call it a flagrant two and eject him which was a terrible call. They should not have ejected him. Okay, so that was that call. Then they don't call a flagrant on Durant getting fouled. He never went for the ball. It was not a basketball play. He ran right up under his legs, and Durant got hurt. Now, Durant shooting 91% from the free throw line, third best in the league, did go to the free throw line and went bang, 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 as Mike Breen would say and gave the Nets a one-point lead. I hate one-point leads because you can always lose by one. Okay, and that's exactly what happened. I thought the Bucs having a timeout would have crossed midcourt and called the timeout, but no, Budenholzer, who just looks like a sloppy mess these days, I hate losing to the Bucs because he just looks like you're losing to some old man that's just like, just sloppy and doesn't care and drinks beer or something. Just uh, just ridiculous. Giannis drives the, just drives from the time he got the ball, just fuck, just just barrels through the lane and, of course, gets fouled, goes to the free throw line, and after having missed, I believe he missed like three in a row prior to that, he makes both of them. Nets have about 3.5 seconds left. They inbound the ball to who else but Kevin Durant, who is getting double teamed, and just like in the playoffs last year in Game 7 when he sent the game to overtime, Durant turned to his right for that like fadeaway three to get out of the double team, 
and it looked good. It looked good, but it clanked off the rim. And right as he went up to shoot the ball, I can't remember if it was Goran Dragic or like Bruce Brown or somebody. There was somebody wide open that was cutting under the rim. And God, if he just went up for one of those shot and then like overhead passes, the Nets would have won the game right there. But, you know, it was Durant shooting it or, or bust at that point. So um, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, they lost a, a, a regular season game by one point as it was. 120 to 119 or something like that. But I was not happy that Durant did not get the flagrant call and Durant was not happy. And here's what Durant had to say afterward. Look at that in terms of a, a, a reckless closeout, perhaps. I mean, I mean, did y'all, I mean, we all thought that was reckless, right? But I think technically, like I have to be in the air and if I come down on his foot, then that's the, that's the flagrant. But he can run into my leg though. A split second before I come, you know what I mean? As I was coming down, I might have hit the floor, and then as soon as I hit the floor, here he come running at my leg, you know. But he didn't make a, it wasn't a contest, or I thought it was supposed to be a flagrant, but te- technically, um, I didn't make the correct play to get a flagrant. I was supposed to still be in the air while he underneath me. And on that corner three foul, I mean, how are you feeling? You were down for a minute on that. I'm hurting. That's two games in a row. Players walked up underneath me, and I'm trying to make make a basketball play. So my ankles hurt. And you just said I'm hurt. My ankles hurt. Like miss a game. No, nah, games hurt. I'm good. It's a little sore. You know how that go. Or do you? You tell. Yeah. So uh, I, it's not cool. Me hearing that that Kevin Durant is hurting and he's sore. That the. the the season's practically over. We're going to be in the play and we need Kevin Durant to be healthy and the league better review this and they better do something about it for the future because he's, this is Kevin Durant, practically the best player on the planet. When he says that that was not a basketball play and he should have gotten a flagrant and he was being a little sarcastic there that apparently I didn't do enough to warrant the call, whatever, but it's Kevin Durant and he is one of the top two superstars in this league and he is supposed to get these types of calls because there was a play earlier in this game where Andre Drummond clearly uh, got a clean block of um, Drew Holiday but oh because it's Drummond and he's slow and Holiday got past him then it must have been a foul well the Nets had to waste a challenge their only challenge on this it was successful Nets got the ball tell me why this is so flawed if you win a challenge in the NFL you get your challenge back but in the NBA you don't and then in overtime there's no challenges whatsoever so this play at the end where Giannis gets fouled which it probably was a foul he doesn't there's no replay on this you don't get to challenge just to for the sake of challenging it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You should get your challenge back when you win the challenge. And in overtime, everybody should get, both teams should get a challenge. I just don't understand that. Like, what are we doing? What is the NBA doing? Put a better product out there. And don't get me started. The final six minutes when I turned it on at 9.30, the game ended at around 10.15 or 10.20. Almost one hour to get through the final six minutes and overtime. What a joke. I thought I was going to get some some eight hour, you know, an eight hour, uh, you know, night sleep in. And I didn't. And I woke up tired and I had a bit of a headache today and I was just not happy about the entire thing. So we'll see whether the Nets get the Bucks in the first round or not. 
I don't care. Bring on anybody because I'm angry now and the Nets are going to smoke anybody that they play. Let's go. Okay, in other news in the NBA last night, DeMar DeRozan dropped 50 to lead the fifth-seeded Bulls past the Clippers. The Savage Atlanta Hawks and Ice Trey eliminate. No, no, no. Uh, no, yeah, the, this was two days ago on Wednesday night, I believe. The Atlanta Hawks and Trey Young, he stays being the villain in New York, eliminated the Knicks from playoff contention. Also last night, shocker, the Lakers lost to the Jazz in the late game on TNT. And if the season ended today, the Lakers wouldn't even be in the play-in tournament. Then you've got good old LeBron James having a an unbelievable season despite all the injuries to Anthony Davis and the rest of his team and having five Hall of Fame players on his team. LeBron posts an April Fool's joke on Twitter. Joking about being out for the remainder of the season, he says, see y'all in the fall. While his team is 31 and 45 and on the verge of missing the play-in tournament. Talk about a bad look. Talk about not reading the room, LeBron. Are you kidding me? And really, is it an April Fool's joke? Are you being serious knowing that you're not going to make the playoffs so nobody is going to see you until the fall? Wow. And finally, the LA Rams have signed a number, a couple of veteran uh, players. Last week, it was receiver Allen Robinson. And yesterday, they inked future Hall of Famer Bobby Wagner to a five-year deal worth a maximum of $65 million. The Rams lost a couple of key players. Don't know what the deal is going to be with Odell with his um, ACL injury, whether they bring him back or not, or when he'll be ready to go. But they're putting themselves back in, in line to contend for a second straight Super Bowl. So Les Snead is doing big things, and Bobby Wagner should help, although he's a bit older now, um, not in his prime. But, wow, uh, impressive nonetheless to sign him. Okay, and finally... On this date in sports, April 1st, 2002, Maryland defeats Indiana 64-52 in the national championship game to secure their first ever national championship. Maryland, of course, um, has had a rough go of things. They did just hire Kevin Willard from Seton Hall, so we'll see if he can turn things around. But yeah. Uh, that's pretty much it, guys. I know I ran it a little bit over today, about an hour and 20 minutes or so. I apologize for that, but I had a, ha- ugh, had a lot to get in. Um, there is, like I said, I've got to wake up early because we've got softball in the morning. But um, there's a number of good shows and new movies that have come out um, to streaming services, so I've got to watch Halo. I'll probably watch Halo before I go to bed, after I shower, after I get this episode up and loaded. Um, Halo Episode 2, new show on Apple TV called Slow Horses just came out. Um, All sorts of stuff. So we'll get to that. Um, I'm going to leave you with this. Um, Hubert Davis, an emotional Hubert Davis, after he punched his ticket, UNC's ticket to the Final Four where they will play Duke tomorrow night. Again, this is going to be 
The ratings are going to be through the roof. I know it's on TBS, but this is going to be epic. So I send you off with an emotional Hubert Davis. Go Duke. Go Coach K. Let's get it done tomorrow night. National championship. Here we come. So long, everybody. Played in the Final Four, and now will coach in the Final Four at the same school, North Carolina.